This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon, listeners. My name is Erin Jones, and I'm hosting the Beyond Zero Emissions show this afternoon. I hope you're well. We've got an action-packed show, as always. Uh, And we're continuing a bit of a theme that um, I think uh, deserves a particular amount of focus, and that's around the work that's happening at a local government level, predominantly. And Beyond Zero Emission has partnered with Ironbark Sustainability and Ilkley Local Governments for Sustainability to produce the Australian Local Government Climate Review 2018. Now, this is a piece of work that um, Beyond Zero Emissions did a few years ago and has done it again. And basically, it's to to create a benchmark and um, survey all the local governments in the country to see where they stand on climate action. Um, So we're speaking with a couple of different people um, about that today, uh, and that'll be really interesting to delve into that report, which hasn't yet been released and will actually be um, formally released this week in a resilient communities and cities conference in Bonn in Germany and we'll actually have a local release sometime in May. We'll also be talking with 350.org.au about the Bill McKibben speaking tour which is coming up in the next few weeks um, around the country. Bill's an authority in climate change and was the um, really wrote the first book for a general audience back about 30-odd years ago around what we were facing. So that's great to um, do a bit of a prelude to that, and we actually hope to have Bill on the show next week as well. So we won't um, hang around. There's plenty to cover, and um, we'll start off with an interview that I did earlier today with Lex. Alexi from Ironbark Sustainability before he jumps on a plane to go to Germany to present this Australian local government survey. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR, 855 AM in Melbourne and broadcasting live streaming on 3cr.org.au. We're really pleased today. Um, This is a topic that's really close to my heart and uh, as you'll know for Um, regular listeners and and listeners to the podcast that I've done quite a focus on local government and it's where I think a lot of initiatives are happening. 
we did a, a full show back last year on the Sunshine Coast solar farm and looked really into the detail of the policy drivers behind that, how it came to be. We looked at both from a political standpoint, talking to the mayor, and also from um, one of the directors within Sunshine Coast Council about you know, the policy drivers, the um, construction, and, and kind of stepped that right through. And it was a, it's a great initiative and a really interesting project. Last week, we spoke with Darabin Council about um, the, serious, the seriousness that they're putting on climate action and actually, you know, looking at climate from an emergency standpoint, which is what we really need to, uh, you know, time is not on our side. We need to keep moving with that. So we're really pleased to actually look in a bit more detail and and on a national level of what is happening at local government. And Beyond Zero Emissions, in partnership with Ironbark Sustainability and Ilkley, have um, done a report. And we're going to talk to Imogen um, later on today from BZE from a community's perspective. But I'm really pleased to have on the line Alexis Lynch, who is the business manager for Ironbark Sustainability. So welcome, Alexi. Thanks, Erin. Great to be here. So tell me a little bit of generally about um, the purpose of the, this report and um, how it came to be. Well, I guess this is something that um, various organisations over the last decade or so have undertaken to really um, get a, a feel for um, the pulse, I guess, of what's happening out there in local government land and community land when it comes to emissions reduction and climate change. And so um, various organisations, we've often worked with ICLEI in the past to go out and survey councils and ask them what's going on, what are the challenges, um, you know, what's working well, what are some of the case studies that can be shared. Uh, simultaneously, it's something that BZE have um, completed as well. They've surveyed councils and community groups. So we got wind that we were both doing this, so we are all doing this, and said, let's go out together. We, um, we all work to reduce emissions and try and fight climate change. We work with different um, sectors, if you like. So we've got a very much local government focus working with councils themselves. BZE are obviously you know, an exceptional organisation that works with community groups and equally one of the largest local government or international local government organisations in the world that works on emissions reduction, energy efficiency, resilience and adaptation throughout um, the world. Great opportunity to go out and what we've ended up with is um, the largest survey of councils and communities in relation to climate change that we're aware of and some great um, data and intelligence. Yeah, so that's... um and this report will be formally launched, I believe, on the 26th. So you're actually going to Bonn in Germany. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, what's going on there, and, and then we can kind of look at how the report relates to that and, and just sort of um, value that that adds to, to be able to launch it there? Uh, it's a great opportunity. Resilient Cities is an annual global forum on urban resilience and adaptation. It's hosted every year in, in Bonn in Germany. And so ICLEI, <coughs> Local Government for Sustainability, and the World Mayor's Council on Climate Change and City of Bonn and cities and councils around the world uh, launched Resilient Cities about eight or nine years ago um, to work with um, councils and other stakeholders to try and find out where... Um, picking up and learning lessons from what's happening in other cities, in other um, countries... Um, and try and apply them to what's happening at a local level. So we learn a lot from a lot of the you know, infrastructure or technology or even process 
um, projects that are happening in other countries. They learn a lot from us as well. So the local government sector in Australia when it comes to climate change um, is, has been extraordinarily effective. One of the things that I'm going to be talking about, for example, is the role of regional greenhouse alliances in Victoria, and there are similar setups in other states, basically where the councils pull their resources, work together uh, on a regional basis. It could be, you know, five to ten councils to work on projects. And what it means is that for some of the smaller, more, um, you know, resource-strapped councils, mm. the smaller, say, rural and regional councils, they're able to work on projects that they might not otherwise be able to work on. So we're going to be um, talking about that. Um, we've got um, representatives from Sustainability Victoria um, and one or two other organisations. The ACT government, I understand, is going to be there as well. Um, mm. We're going to be hearing what's going on in the rest of the world. Fantastic. Now, that'll be really interesting. And, uh, yeah, as what's borne out in this report, and I'm sure out of those discussions, so much action is happening at that community, local government, state government level. You know, there's kind of a, a vacuum of um, not much happening at federal level, certainly in this country, and that's been the case with uh, for many too long a year now. And um, in the United States as well, you know, the federal government's kind of making itself irrelevant. Um, but luckily, we've got many small governments that are doing this work, and so this report that um, has been put together really is a bit of a snapshot at this point in time, and I believe it's going to be repeated on a um, two-yearly basis to kind of keep keep an eye on what's happening at a um, local and state level. Yeah, you're right. Um, we will, and we want to be able to then track um, how councils are going um, compared to, say, the data that we have now and the data that we've had in the past. And you're, um, you're spot on. You, you, were, you mentioned in your introduction, Erin, about Darabin and Sunshine Coast. I want to go back and have a listen to those episodes uh, because you've got two really interesting case studies there. Darabin, a uh, you know, relatively small inner city Melbourne Council, and their climate emergency plan is um, quite unique and innovative. Um, you know, it's very much a take-no-prisoners approach to um, climate. The team that they've got there, the council that they've got there have been incredibly progressive and they're not mucking around mm. um, and they're moving and putting a lot of resources into um, the, the work they're doing. Sunshine Coast, um, of course, some people might not realise that we've got a funny situation in Australia where most councils or local governments are actually relatively small on an international scale. So the city of Melbourne and the city of Sydney, it's not yes. the four or five million people in the greater, you know, greater Melbourne and greater Sydney. city of Melbourne is quite small. Um, Darabin's quite small. Queensland's the exception where we've got these behemoth councils, the cities of Brisbane and Sunshine Coast and Gold Coast. Um, the city of Brisbane is essentially metropolitan Brisbane. Um, and Sunshine Coast, with their smart cities approach and their utility-scale solar, other end of the spectrum, really leading where other levels of government have not. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I must give a disclaimer. I'm actually from Queensland um, and worked for the Sunshine Coast Council when it wasn't the Sunshine Coast Council, it was called Maroochee Shire Council, um, and then the councils got amalgamated. But yeah, people from other states don't realise, I mean, Brisbane City Council is effectively the same size as the Tasmanian state government. Massive organisations. Um, but it's, it's wonderful what they've done, and, and it's a really interesting model that could be replicated by any or by any large power organisation. And the interesting thing that came out of that discussion that, that I had with um, the different sort of, you know, from a political standpoint and from an operational standpoint, 
um, is that, you know, anyone could do what they've done. You don't need to be, because the fact is, you know, the, um, just for people, they built a 15 megawatt um, farm which services all their council council needs, Swim, swimming pools, street lighting, depots, offices, everything. Uh, and it's really interesting to look at that as a model because that could be implemented by a council in a city because you don't need to have the facility within the physical bounds or the geographical bounds of your shires um, where it's located. Um, so it was just a really interesting kind of project to do. I mean, obviously there's other ways, power purchase agreements, you don't necessarily have to build your own, but it, it's mm. one way that they did it. And it's and I know that you've, you've got that as a case study in this report, um, going to deliver you know significant savings to that council, not only offset 100% of their use, but um, I think it was something like, from memory, $22 million over the course of the project and savings to ratepayers. So a, a really interesting one. So that, it was great that, to see that in there. So yeah. when the, um, the the survey went out to local governments, what, what's the general response back? I mean, that's, you know, kind of one of the leaders and they've kind of put this up. Um, but, but how did that general response come back? Oh, we had a, a high response. It was a long survey. So we thank everyone who responded. We knew it was long. Um, but we wanted to take the opportunity to really delve deep into some of the data. Um, we had a, a good cross-section across Australia. There's probably um, more Victorian councils and then New South Wales councils represented, but we still were able to get um, responses from other states. We had mainly council staff, officers, managers, elected um, members and senior executive responding. Um, and we also had community groups and other stakeholders respond. And what, what we see is some... We, 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 have a, we have some interesting data that we weren't really aware of that was um, great to hear around things like council budgets, and then we can you know, cross-reference that with where a council sits in far of its um, you know, socioeconomic indicators and the work that they're actually doing and the amount they spend on climate change which in a way means that you can actually get a feel for you know, what a, a normal or a standard or a typical council should be spending or would be spending on these sort of um, items. Mm -hmm. Other things that we, we knew, and it was great to be reminded and they were consistent with previous surveys, which is that, again, it's, it's at the council level where um, we have seen leading projects, we have got targets that are set and we're set in, we've seen implementation. There's a lot more implementation than perhaps we saw two, five, six years ago. One of the interesting things is, you know, we, we talk a lot about solar and there's a reason for it, but, you know, it is solar, 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 which comes through when it comes from councils working on their own facilities, so their rec centres, their, you know, small maternal child healthcare centres, kindergarten admin centres, and also working with the community through, um, you know, bulk buys or um, other, other programs. Um, and as you pointed out, it's not, I mean, technically it's quite... Straightforward. It's very straightforward. A lot of the um, a lot of the case studies that we've got in this report are essentially different models. We've got renewable Newstead. Um, we've got Sunshine Coast. Um, we've got a project light years ahead in New South Wales in Western Sydney, which is a bunch of councils working on solar storage, HVAC, so looking at you know the way buildings work and lighting. As you mentioned, there are PPAs and. We, we couldn't fit them all in. There's the amazing work that BZE did, I think, down in Port Augusta through um, 
you know, zero, I think it was part of zero carbon communities, but either way, I mean, some of the work that they've done there, working with the community to get large-scale solar involved. Um, and then the final point you made about not actually necessarily needing to have the renewable resource within your municipality, probably the, the best-known recent example of that is the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project, or mm. MREP, um, which is where a handful of councils and other organisations within Greater Melbourne got together, put out a tender for renewables. Um, and of course, it's not within the actual municipal boundaries, it's from outside throughout the rest of the state. Is that the project that's um, powering electric trams, or is that a different one? I think it's a different one. Yeah, okay, but it, it's... It's great to see that these these things are happening and people are starting to think about it um, a, a bit longer. A, a bit more, they're, they're, they're really willing and able and like to share the information. So MREP was the first of its kind, MREP, the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. Uh, the team at the City of Melbourne, and there were people from Darabin who were you know heavily involved, they were doing this for the first time and they've done an amazing job. There's a lot of things that they would do differently. Those resources are available free of charge for any council to, um, or community group to download and to, um, to learn from. And now we're looking at MREP marks, you know, two, three and four. Councils are looking into the next steps, um, alliances as well, so the regional groupings, because it does make much more sense at scale. Love to get the state government involved. Um, they've been really supportive um, as a general rule in, um, in the state of Victoria anyway, where this project is, is happening but it wouldn't take much seed funding to assist in the preparation stages to get some of these off the ground. Yeah, and, you know, there's no point um, reinventing the wheel. I think it's important that these local governments look at the existing, um, you know, projects that have happened and um, build on them as opposed to to starting again. Um, So we've talked about some of those, probably some of those lower-hanging fruits of, of, you know, the street lighting and... um, you know, installing solar PV on, on different um, council facilities. What were the barriers that uh, showed up out of, out of the survey in terms of um, what councils maybe wanted to do as opposed to what, what they're being able to achieve? Um, have a guess what the number one barrier would always be. Money. Yeah. Um, that's, what the, that's what's said and that's what comes back. Um, I... I think it's a little bit more complicated than that now, and I think a lot of the and money and expertise you know, and resources, I think it really does depend on the, the council, obviously. For some, it's less of an issue. When it comes to mitigation activities, when it comes to energy efficiency and solar, as we've just discussed, there are other ways of getting money. Mm, money is yeah. cheap at the moment. Um, it's easy to get finance. Um, so... And they stack uh, up. I mean, that was a big thing yeah. in the detailed discussion about the Sunshine Coast Solar Farm is, you know, they, they didn't do it as a feel-good project. Um, it was done because it made sense. I mean, there were some, some other drivers behind it about their goals around sustainability. But when they actually, you know, got into the guts of, of the investigation of the project, it, it's, it's going to save them money. So, you know, I st- mm. I'm, I'm starting to think that, that funding is starting to wear a bit thin as um, a reason because the fact is the technologies are getting cheaper and maybe it is just about kind of people reframing how they are because also, you know, we've got to start more seriously looking at the cost of not doing things and factoring those costs into the equation. Yeah, and and count, I mean, from the work that we do, and we work with hundreds of councils around Australia in any given year, they're onto this and have been onto it. Mm. And so there's, there's everyone in council land knows and does know and those 
sustainability environment officers, climate officers, know that to get a project up they need to demonstrate a very clear business case and that's what they've been doing and we as a sector have been doing very successfully for a long time. Um, as you say, for some of those, all that low-hanging fruit should have been picked by now. There are 460-odd thousand streetlights that have been changed now Australia-wide, saving hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, solar is money for jam. Um, mm. The opportunities are, um, are absolutely out there. It gets a little bit more uh, challenging um, in, in other sort of areas, so with transport and waste, often, it's not mm. to say there isn't a, a clear business case, and then probably even more so than when you move to things like climate adaptation, where we really need the state support. So there's a yeah. lot of states that have got adaptation plans and strategies um, that require councils to do certain things and implement certain things and look into heat stress or how they're going to adapt. That's going to cost money. And a lot of councils around Australia are now in a situation where there's legislative rate capping, so they can't increase their rates. Yet the states are saying you need to start implementing things around adaptation and to the local level where we're going to see these effects. We really need to see some more longer-term partnerships, I think, between local and state government. And, and this has happened in the past. There have been successful partnerships, like the Victorian Local Government Accord, um, where we can actually you know, work together to try and resolve some of these issues. Yeah. All right, well, look, that's fantastic. It's great to see this work being done. And um, uh, obviously you're going to Germany and, and presenting it in that um, global context. What's the attitudes um, from uh, not necessarily the councils, but um, I'm thinking, you know, council associations um, in terms of presenting this material back in those type of forums? Uh, we'll soon find out. Um, okay. Hopefully they'll be... Um you know, really happy with what, what we've got. We've, it's been the case, a lot of the hard work that's been completed so far. Um, there's a lot, things are obviously changing rapidly. Um, we all see the changes in technology that happen throughout our, our world and when it comes to renewable energy um, technologies especially, it's where we're, you know, we're really at the, the pointy end and where it is all happening. Um, we're going to keep, you know, pushing councils to, um, and communities to you know, keep this as a high priority. We're depending on the, the audience. So for, you know, for councils, we think it's a matter of certainly implementing. Um, if you've got a certain amount of budget, then you really shouldn't be spending too much money on um, strategies or um, you know, documents that are going to maybe talk about where we're going to get one day, but actually install mm -hmm. solar and actually reduce your emissions. There are some exceptional um, movements that are happening at a, at, a, at a local and an international level, possibly in lieu of what's been happening at the highest level. So we talk about the US and um, you know, Trump obviously pulling out from Paris. Mm. Um, the alignment to programs such as the Global Covenant of Mayors, this is where the action is happening now and this is yep. where organisations and community groups on the other sides of the world are working together to reduce emissions setting targets that are in line with the climate science. So I really like this one, and it's one that my view has changed a lot over the last six or 12 months. So when we talk about science-derived targets or science-based targets, it basically says we've got to hit below two degrees, so we've mm. got to set carbon budget. And for a lot of councils, that means getting to zero quite quickly is scary. But if you frame the conversation as more saying this is a not negotiable target, we're not setting it, it's what the science says. Yeah. Um, so it's up to us how or if we're going to meet it, but the science does not 
care whether we meet it or not because if we don't, there'll be consequences. Yes. And I think also, so then they're looking maybe towards community groups, working with, um, you know, signing up for zero carbon communities and working with BZE um, to, you know, replicate some of the programs that have been um, implemented over the last couple of years or decades. And having been involved myself 15 years ago in, um, you yeah, volunteer-run organisations, being really strategic about it. So what's the value of the work and what you're trying to do? If it's about reducing greenhouse emissions, then, you know, perhaps it's moving on from transport surveys or waste audits and actually <clears throat> using your limited time and resources to um, greatest value and see organisations like BZE doing that. Yeah, great. Well, look, um, we're probably running close to time, so um, we really appreciate your time today. I know you've got a plane to get on to um, this evening to head to the other side of the world and, and um, see some of the great examples that are happening over there, and we'd really uh, like to um, have a chat with you when you come back about uh, what uh, came to light at that conference and what's happening around the world. In some ways, the vacuum at a federal level, both here and certainly in the US, has galvanised a lot of local action. Um, it's really interesting, you know, seeing um, what's going on, particularly in New York, uh, with the, um, the sewer, you know, they're looking at obviously suing um, the five biggest oil companies. And, uh, yeah, it, it's really galvanised, I think, some action. So whilst it's not a great outcome, um, it has pushed these... Um, other levels of government to, to really move. You're right, Erin, and it was sort of 15, 20 years ago under the, the Howard government when we weren't going to sign Kyoto, and I think the, the Kyoto Protocol, the, the word from certain members of the federal government was it was going to be the biggest threat to our sovereignty since the Japanese came into mm. Sydney Harbour or something absurd like that. Of course, we signed Kyoto eventually and nothing happened. But way back then, there was nothing happening at the federal level, mm. and there were 240 councils around Australia who had signed up to the biggest council program in the world. Yeah. 90% of the population or 80, 90% of the population of Australia were covered by governments that were committed to climate action and started doing this long before um, all of the others. So I think we can, you know, we can learn from that. Again, we've got a similar situation with a bit of luck. You know, we can, if the, if the NEG or whatever it's called these days ends up getting through, that we've got a decent, you know, greenhouse yeah. emissions threshold. But the politics will come and go. Um, in the meantime, certainly at a local level, councils, community groups are going to just keep doing stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, yeah, we really look forward to that. And thanks for coming on, Lex. It's been great to chat with you. Pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Bye. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. And uh, I'm Erin Jones and I'm the host of the BZE radio show tonight. Um, We're going to continue on our theme looking at the results from this Local Government Climate Review 2018. And have a, um, I'm going to play you now an interview with Imogen Jubb that I did earlier today. Imogen is the... um, lead for BZE on the Zero Carbon Communities Initiative and uh, was the principal behind this report. So let's have a listen to Imogen. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR 855 AM, streaming on 3cr.org.au or you can podcast all of our radio shows from the BZE website bze.org.au. Today, um, following on our our theme of looking at the Local Government Climate Review, we're talking to Imogen Jubb, and Imogen was the principal of this report and is from Beyond Zero Emissions and is the the lead authority and uh, heads up the work, the outreach work that we do with communities. So welcome, Imogen. Thanks very much for having me, Erin. So this report um, is, we're really in a pre-launch phase at the moment and it'll probably be launched sometime in May. Um, But as we were talking to Lex, this report is actually going to be um, talked about as well in Bonn in Germany as part of um, the Resilient Cities um, Conference. And it's really, um, you know, we've talked numerous times on the show with different guests about how the real action is coming from the community and or local government perspective. So we're kind of continuing in that theme. So can you talk us through a little bit about um, the impetus behind the report and, and how it came to be? Yeah, that's, um, I'd love to, love to talk about it. The, the project really came about because about two years ago, BZE produced a short report on councils and their actions. And um, we really wanted to do a more thorough version of that report and get the best information available about what Australian local councils are doing on climate change, um, what their targets are, what their communities think, and what are the most effective actions that councils can take. And also, um, how can policies at the state or federal level support action at a community scale? Great. And so what have been the, the key findings then to come out of that? So we've done two different types of bits of research. One was a desktop review of all councils around Australia, um, which found that 50% of Australian councils provide public information on climate change to their communities um, and that a significant proportion have a council target. Around 20% of Australian councils provide a corporate emissions target to reduce the emissions from council, but only about 7% of Australian councils provide a public target to reduce community emissions. So that is quite interesting information in itself. Mm. Um, and then we also did a survey of councils and asked them to provide more information. And from that survey, we found about 81% of councils had or intended to have a corporate emissions target and about 40% intended to or had a community emissions target. 
So um, around Australia there are lots of councils taking really significant action, but there are a lot of councils that aren't as well. Yeah, right. And what was the, you know, did you kind of delve into barriers or what What do you think maybe anecdotally, are, you know, inhibiting those councils from taking action? Uh, lack of resources was the primary reason um, for barriers, um, both at the community and corporate scale. There was very um, minimal funding or ad hoc funding available to actually enable those um, projects to go ahead. Um, at the corporate kind of council scale, a lot of these projects will save council money anyway, so quite a few of them are going ahead just from the cost savings perspective. Mm. But there isn't great information or great support available for councils to do that at a larger scale. Yeah, right. And obviously, um, you know, a lot of BZE work is done um, with volunteers, so is that is that how this project rolled out as well? Yeah, volunteers were a really key component to this piece of work. We wouldn't have been able to undertake that desktop review. And we actually had three um, instrumental coordinators, volunteer coordinators, take on the work and organise the survey um, and engage councils around Australia and do that review of every single council in the country. We're really grateful for those volunteers to enable this kind of work to happen. Yeah, that's fantastic because, you know, there is... Um there is a lot of work happening at that level, so it's great to kind of bring that data together and be able to share that. Um, and and it gives us a benchmark because I think you're looking to repeat this work at a fairly regular interval. Yeah, it's really important to get that kind of benchmark to see if progress is, um, is happening and also to help drive support for action at both council and community level. Yeah. So the Zero Carbon Communities Project, which is what you head up within BZE, that's done a lot of work already with a number of different um, councils and or communities. Can you kind of talk about, um, when we're talking about, you know, it's kind of easier, I suppose, and more contained for a council to look at its own operations, but that work that's happening out in the community, how is, how is what sort of shape is that taking? Well, that community work is really important. Um, as... As I think mentioned earlier, there is really strong, significant support in communities all around Australia for action on climate change, and people want to take responsibility for their own emissions. So a local government scale is a really excellent way for communities to take action because it's small enough where they can have a really big impact, um, but big enough to feel like they're making really significant change. Um, communities are also an excellent resource for councils because, as I mentioned, councils are generally quite... Um, constrained in what they can do, um, particularly in community engagement. But if the community itself is driving that project and can partner with the council, they can be really supportive of each other and get things going faster yeah. um, and more effectively. And like there's anything, also you know, really good op- Sorry. There's also really good opportunities for councils and communities to partner together in regional groups um, because, you know, no one wants to reinvent the wheel and if we can share learnings between each other, things will progress faster as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and also, I mean, it's important. I mean, councils, like all levels of government, are, um, you know, somewhat political in their nature. And, you know, when the community is really organising itself and calling for action, it makes it much easier for those, um, you know, councils to stand up and take notice of this because their their ratepayers and community members are really demanding that this is something that, they place importance on and, and place value on. 
And we know that um, you know councils, like all organisations, are uh, have constrained budgets. But the fact is, a lot of these projects make sense economically now. The technology has come to a point where you know it, it makes sense to you know cover the roof and solar and etc. Um, but I also think it's important for them to keep in mind the cost of not doing anything. And you know we see time and time again in extreme weather events the amount of that infrastructure that is damaged, roads, bridges, sewerage treatment plants, all those type of things, predominantly those are local government assets. Um, so, you know, there's some, there's some benefits there as well. Yeah, there's, there's really strong benefits for both communities and councils engaged in this. Um, the positive outcomes are cost savings, environmental benefits and increased profile for the council and the community. Um, and it will also help meet, like, state national and international targets to, um, and, and it also really helps communities prepare for the coming impacts of climate change as well, um, partly by building those community networks and increasing opportunities for resilience and, and people power really. That's one of the best outcomes of this kind of approach is when people feel like they can make an impact on their community and you know get policies changed and get things solar panels on roofs and get emissions down in their local area and be able to track it. Yeah, great. So there's a number of um, case studies in the report. Did you want to highlight one of those for our listeners? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a few. Um, so Clean Energy Nilimbik, one of the zero carbon communities that Beyond Zero Emissions was working with last year, and they formed a group, uh, uh, incorporated association, and are now doing great things around the community to tell stories of businesses who have put on solar or done efficiency measures they're working with council to investigate a solar farm for both corporate and community emissions reduction. They're looking at investment options that will work to enable those kind of projects happen at scale. Um, and they're also supporting the council to re reduce its own corporate targets. So that's an example of a really great council-community partnership. Mm -hmm. And it's often... Um, there's international studies that suggest that um, when councils and communities do this kind of work together, they're more likely to last a distance and more likely to be effective in the long run. So it's, it's really quite um, a great way to approach this is when councils and communities can support each other. Yeah, exactly. There's also um, a kind of regional area in northwest Victoria, um, which has small towns have formed to create their own targets. So Yakandanda is one of the key examples of that which intends to be 100% renewables by 2022. Um, and they've partnered with one of the actual local energy providers to help enable that project. And there's also plenty of other groups in the regions. One of them is Renewable Energy Benalla, another zero-carbon community. And they, they're looking to form um, a community energy retailer. And they've also got great support from their um, local representatives and Josh Frydenberg was taken on a tour there recently of um, all of the communities who are trying to push for change and enable emissions reductions in their local area. That would have been an interesting conversation over the tea break there, I'm sure. Uh, hopefully some of it sunk in. Um, yeah. look, I think it, is, it, it highlights how communities and councils can drive change at a political level. And I think that's a really important outcome because Without effective policies, it will be a real hard slug to get to those 100% targets. Yeah, 
Yeah. So for someone out there listening who is, um, you know, really passionate about uh, moving their community towards, um, you know, zero emissions and 100% renewable power, what's the best way that they can kind of start taking those steps of either forming a group or engaging with with, um, the Zero um, Communities Project? What's What's the way that they can get that started? Uh, so get informed is a good starting point. There's a zero carbon communities guide on the Beyond Zero Emissions website, um, which takes talks through a series of steps that will help um, lead communities to zero emissions outcomes. Um, but really the first step is to find a few other people in your community who care about this and want to see some change. Um, it really only takes a handful of people to get things started. And if you can find those like-minded people in your area, you're well on your way to enabling your community to set a target, enabling really proactive conversations with council staff or with councillors or the mayor. Um, There's a few programs um, that offer support, like the Cities Power Partnership run by the Climate Council and the Global Covenant of Mayors run by um, the local governments for sustainability network. And there's also clean um, community energy project groups. So there's lots of different people who want to drive this change and finding a few like-minded people and working together to set your vision and sharing that vision with others in your community is what I recommend doing. Fantastic. All right, well, great to talk with you. We, um, we'll look out for the launch of this uh, latest report, which is the Australian Local Government Climate Review 2018. Um, I'm sure if people uh, tune in to the BZE website, there will be details of that launch sometime in May. So thanks, Imogen. It's um, great to chat with you today and um, congratulations on the new piece of work and we look forward to the official launch. Thanks very much, Erin. Bye-bye. Bye. Took me to your heart and then you took me to your bed 
head But I'm so sorry, darling I'm afraid you've been misled So then I chased your ambulance To sue the weather not it's bad But I couldn't find the answers In between your broken legs Perhaps it's time we It's a great song, but um, hopefully it's not. We're not at the beginning of the end. We're at the beginning of taking massive action, and that's what needs to happen to uh, step back from this pending climate emergency, which is going to touch all different parts of our lives. Um, but here at BZD Radio, we focus on solutions, and there's many of them. But we've got to start taking action. So one of the um, people that's been hugely instrumental in getting action around the world and who uh, wrote one of the first books for general public around uh, the climate situation is Bill McKibben. And Bill McKibben formed 350.org um, a number of years back and uh, has been active in this space ever since. Uh, Bill is coming out on a speaking tour to Australia uh, in the next couple of weeks and we had a chat earlier today with the Deputy CEO of uh, 350.org Australia about Bill's tour. So let's have a chat now to Glenn about that. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR 855 AM or streaming at 3cr.org.au. And um, I'm really pleased to have on the line Glenn Klotowski, and he is the Deputy CEO of 350.org Australia. Welcome, Glenn. Hi. Um, we've got you on the line today because you've got some pretty big events coming up um, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, we do, yeah. Predominantly, Bill McKibben's coming on a, a speaking tour. So can you give us a bit of a and um, some feedback on what he's covering and what, what's kind of the main purpose of these talks. Yeah, for those of you who don't know Bill, um, Bill's probably the first person who ever wrote a book for a general audience about climate change and how it's going to impact humanity. He wrote a book in 1989, um, and it really helped start uh, a, the movement uh, of people around the world who are really concerned about climate change, its impacts and what we need to do. And he, um, in the lead up to the Copenhagen uh, UN summit in 2009, felt that uh, there wasn't enough community action uh, around the world to really have the power to make a difference at an international level. So he and a group of uni students created 350.org and uh, we are the Australian version of 350 and um, I think this is the third time he's come to Australia since 2009 to come and talk to Australian audiences about all the amazing things that are happening globally and also the importance of just the average Australian getting off our backsides and doing something about climate change. So very inspirational speaker and there's some extraordinary things happening around the world that many people in Australia 
including probably our government, uh, uh, either don't know about or uh, haven't heard um, uh, in the in the mainstream media. Yeah, exactly. And um, I've had the pleasure of uh, hearing Bill speak um, at a live event in Brisbane a couple of years ago, and uh, he, he certainly is an inspirational speaker. And we really need to, um, you know, get some acceleration around this action. Um, People yeah. may be aware that uh, Bill was on the panel with the uh, Mayor of New York City back in yeah. January this year when they announced their massive um, divestment um, initiative and also the fact that they are suing or putting together a case to sue five of the biggest uh, fossil fuel companies in the world. So, That's you know, right. Bill's right up there as an authority on this and, and many of our listeners will be familiar with Bill's work um, and I'm sure we'll we'll be taking steps to to get along to these various events and, and places that Bill is speaking at. Yeah, and look, the the really amazing thing that is happening right now is that major cities around the world are suing the, the fossil fuel companies. New York's justification for their legal case five years after Hurricane Sandy did so much damage in that city is that they've worked out it costs $20 billion to put in the measures to protect New York from the impacts of climate change. And their argument is that these oil companies have known for 40 years about what was coming and have done everything they could to stop any action by governments around the world to try and minimise the impacts of climate change. They have made trillions of dollars in that period of time and they have allowed climate change to come to the point where it is having a serious impact on the average citizens of every country and every city in the world. So this is a pivotal moment, and now that litigation has started, that changes the entire landscape for the future of fossil fuels. Yeah, and, you know, as Bill's pointed out at different times, you know, this is the only industry in the world predominantly that... um you know, it doesn't have to pay for the um, management of its waste. Um, you Absolutely. know, restaurants can't throw their uh, the end of the night out into the street, yet, um, yep. you know, the atmosphere in the commons is, is being polluted. And as you say, these companies have been making profit off this for decades and decades, yep. and they're not really truly, um, you know, picking up the cost of, of what this is. And they, they have known better than anyone else exactly mm-hmm. what would happen. Last year... There was a very famous case um, where um, uh, the history of Exxon's knowledge of climate change and its impacts from the late 1970s onwards was um, uh, provided to the public. And from the late 70s, Exxon have known exactly what was going to happen. And as we have seen, the climate deniers and all of those other agitators who stopped action on climate change many of whom have been funded by these same companies, um, has meant that over 40 years when we could have taken substantial action and minimised the impacts, that hasn't happened and they need to bear the responsibility for their actions. Yeah. Well, it'll be really interesting. I don't know where the timeline is and obviously that that case in New York particularly is going to be, um, you know, it's not going to happen over a short period of time. I imagine there will be... A massive amount of pushback, but it'll be interesting if, yeah. if Bill can give uh, you know some update on on that and on other cities that are you know looking towards what actions they can take. Well, the other exciting thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks is that 
the legal case taken by San Francisco against the same five companies has forced Chevron, representing those five oil companies, to admit in court for the first time ever that the science of climate change is real and that the industry accepts it and that the impacts that the science has been predicting for years are happening, are real and are the consequence of um, humans pumping uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Yeah. Oh, I think it's, um, you know, we're really at a turning point, but, but so we need to be. I mean, we, yes, we haven't got time. Absolutely. We really have to get a move on with this. So yep. I'd encourage um, our listeners out there to jump on the 350 website, 350.org.au, and um, I'm sure if you look for the um, the dates there, they'll be quite prominent. Um, Newcastle, are, yep. April 27th, Sydney, May 1, Canberra, May 2, Melbourne, May 3, Adelaide, May 4, Darwin, um, it's a live stream, May 4, and Perth as well. And I know that you're also encouraging people um, to host a live streaming viewing party. So can, can you just elaborate on, on how that works? Yeah, so the Melbourne event on the 3rd of May, on a Thursday night, um, the build component of that, um, that presentation is going to be live streamed. So it'll be available off our website. And more than, uh, more than 50 people have already put their hand up to host parties either at their home or at a local community um, space um, and invite their friends and colleagues and others to come and view the Bill Talk and then to talk about what they can do in their local community. And our team um, uh, engage with you, talk to you about how to do it and follow up with any subsequent actions. So if you, want, if you can't make it to one of our presentations... Um, but you really want to get active and get your local community active on climate change, um, here's a great opportunity. You'll get bills streamed live into your house or into your venue, and then um, you'll have our team helping support you get active in your local community. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, we're actually doing quite a bit of focus on um, the show today around uh, there's just been a report that BZE has... has um, been the principal um, author of, along with uh, Ironbark Sustainability and Ilkley, around yep. what's happening at local government level, and that's sort of a, a snapshot of 2018 and, and surveying all the local governments in Australia, yep. where a lot of action is happening, and and you know people need to understand that they can have impact. Um, and doing this, you know, a first step, get some people together, get some action. You know, from that, there might be a follow-through to, you know, discussing these things with your, your local council or your state member. Um, but we need action, and that needs to get people mobilised and continuing to put pressure because the technological solutions are there. We know yeah. that. We know they're cost-effective. Um, what we need is political action and we need to keep on keep on pushing this because we just well, haven't and, got time. And this local community activity, which... So divestment really kicked off about five years ago around the world. It's about institutions pulling their money away from any, any bank or any entity that invests directly into fossil fuels. Um, that divestment campaign, when it first started would never have believed where we are today with divestment. Mm. More than six trillion US dollars have been divested around the world. And Australia has more local governments that have divested than any other country. So we have been a heavy lifter and our local government movement has been substantial and has had an impact not just here but around the world. 
And local government is where the impacts of climate change is most deeply felt. So it is incredibly important politically, but it's also having a massive impact financially. So it's hard to get a fossil fuel project up anywhere in the world these days, partly because there's less money around for it. Yes, exactly. And, you know, thankfully we've had a number of the banks um, say they won't fund things like um, the Adani project, for example, but we've got to keep that pressure up. Those projects can't happen. Um, I would encourage listeners, if they haven't, to familiarise themselves with the Do the Maths article, which was um, one of um, Bill McKibben's pieces of writing that was in the Rolling Stone magazine. Um, it's, It's the second most popular article ever in the history of Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, just extraordinary, and it really changed things in 2013. It is a, a magnificent thing to read. It's not too long, and uh, um, if you're a bit cynical about divestment, it will change your mind. It'll also tell you how much work we have to do um, and how we achieve it. And that's the big part of Bill's talk while he's here in Australia: is yes, we have a huge job to do, and there's not much time, but it is happening. There are real changes happening. Um, All the things that he spoke about five years ago in Australia are coming to pass and now we need that big acceleration, that big push um, to really increase the the, um, velocity of these changes. And right now is the time. It's a really exciting time. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, thanks for your time today, Glenn. Um, That's the best place for people to get tickets. Go to the 350.org. 350.org.au and you'll find all of that information on the front page of our website. Fantastic. All right, well, um, I'm looking forward to hearing Bill speak. It's always really inspirational. Um, So uh, everyone get out there and get your tickets. Or if you can't make it along, get onto that live streaming um, and, and do that. And there's some really exciting other speakers who are speaking alongside Bill at each of the venues as well. So have a look at that information. Some people who you may never have heard of before but who have lived the experience of climate change in their local communities. Yeah, exactly. And I know that our BZE CEO, um, Vanessa Petrie, is involved in the event in Newcastle. So um, we look forward to that as well. Okay, thanks, Glenn, and um, every success. Thank you very much. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And you're with Erin Jones on the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Uh, We've actually got the luxury tonight of doing a bit of an extended broadcast. Uh, Save Albert Park, who's usually on the 6 o'clock slot, have... um, are on a bit of an absence at the moment uh, so we're running a little bit longer which is great because we've had um, a lot of content to cover tonight so that was wonderful and um, I didn't correctly back announce the song that I played previously and that was Gentle Ben and Sensitive Side and The Beginning of the End which we uh, which was not played as a um, preemptive uh, cursor to the situation that we're currently facing. 
So we've had a lot of focus on tonight's show around what's happening at local government level, um, certainly in Australia. And we had a bit of a discussion there when we were talking about the Bill McKibben speaking tour around some of the initiatives that are starting to really gain some momentum, particularly in the United States, of uh, some you know really major um, local government municipalities, particularly New York City, who are doing a massive divestment of all their pension funds for um, the likes of their public workers, city workers, teachers, um, police force, uh, fire, uh, firemen and women. Um, so we're talking big dollars, something like $5 billion. So that's really important uh, in taking those local actions. But I want to bring you one more final interview for today's show. And um, I had earlier today the pleasure of Diana McDonald come into the studio and have a chat around uh, what the, some research that's been going on because it's actually, you know, we talk about a lot of projects that are happening um, to address climate change, but this research is really important because it actually looks at attitudes to climate change. And what it brings out is some really strong, solid research showing that the community wants action and it wants it now. So let's have a listen to a chat that I had earlier today when Diana McDonald from Sustainability Victoria came into the studios. Listeners, I'm pleased to um, have a guest with us today, Diana McDonald, and she is the Social Research Lead with the Climate Change Coordination Team at Sustainability Victoria. Welcome, Diana. Thank you, Erin. What we're going to have a bit of a chat today, we're actually going to have a more detailed discussion with Diana in the um, weeks to come because there's some really important work around perceptions around climate change. And as you know, the theme of today's show, we've been looking at a lot of actions and, and we've, there's been an audit done of uh, actions that are happening at a local government level. And that ties in with some of the things that are happening at a state government level. But it's it's really important uh, to see where the perceptions on climate change are in the general community. And that's why so much action has been happening with community groups, because we know anecdotally, but now this research backs that up, that people are really passionate and they want to see action on these on these items. So we're just going to get a little bit of a taste today of some of that um, some of that research and we're going to actually have another chat with Diana in the next few weeks about uh, not only the current work that's done but some that's in the pipeline as well. So if we can just start with um, a little bit of an overview of uh, how this work came to be and what were some of the key findings. Mm-hmm. Sure Erin. Well, um, like you said, Sustainability Victoria, it's a state government agency working for the Department of DELP, um, so it's Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, and part of the remit at Sustainability Victoria is to help Victorians act on climate change. And for us to do that in any kind of meaningful way, we needed, we first needed some current data so we could get in and sort of understand the mindset of Victorians on climate change. Um, we had done some research a few years earlier, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't current, so we needed to go out and and find out how people were thinking on this issue. So, for instance, we wanted to know, do people actually know that um, climate change is happening and do they attribute it to human activity? Um, 
are they concerned about it? How concerned are they about it? Um, are they already doing things to combat it? And what are their expectations? Do they think that um, government should be doing more? Do they think businesses should be chipping in? And how prepared are they to act themselves? So um, for us to get this intelligence, we um, commissioned help from a research organisation, Wallace Research, and also help from um, a client climate change psychologist to help with the questions and we um, gathered feedback from 3,300 people across Victoria and the sample was um, carefully designed to make sure that the sample was representative of Victorians and so now we have this massive database um, that gives us great insight into how people are thinking and their general perceptions on climate change. Yeah that's fantastic. So let's go into a little bit of the detail with that. Mm -hmm. And what was born out of, of that research? Mm -hmm. Well, some of the headline findings, we've got a great statistic that tells us that 91% of the Victorian population know that climate change is happening and know that human activity is to at least some extent contributing to it. So that tells us only 7% of Victorians can be classified as sceptics. And of these, um, 4% say there's no such thing as climate change and 3% say, well, it exists, but human activity has nothing to do with it. So, and there were 2% who didn't know. But, um, but so that tells us more than 9 out of 10 mm. can see it happening around them. They know it's happening and we know too that concern levels are high. 78% are concerned about climate change and we know that they all expect and want action. So I think 91% of people want action from government or levels of government and that same number, 9 and 10 or a bit more, a bit over, want and expect action from businesses and community um, organisations as well. And the good thing is, too, they're prepared to take action themselves. They see individuals as also responsible and they believe they can do something meaningful on climate change as well. Yeah, fantastic. And, I mean, it's important to have this because, you know, politicians are going to be challenged on it. And mm. so it's important to know what these... Um, perceptions are in the community it gives strength to that action mm. I mean we're seeing that play out currently in the national energy guarantee um, discussion that's happening at a federal and state level so um, and it's been great and you can't say this but I can it's <laughs> been great to see that uh, you know Victoria's stood firm mm. uh, on its you know great inroads that it's making in terms of, of targets and emissions targets so uh, this kind of research really can, you know, back up and and stand strong and really, you know, working in an overwhelming majority there, 91%, mm, realising yep. that, um, you know, humans are, are hugely involved in the causation of climate change and we want to see some action being taken. Yep. So that that's really good and it's good to see that there's been a um, cross-section of, of population in different areas. Um, what uh, was there... You know, was there a lot of difference across different regions or what were kind of some of the the different issues that came forward? Yep. Well, the interesting, one of the biggest and most consistent differences was across age group. Um, so we know that young people had higher proportions who were concerned about climate change. And um, the we had a question that asked about the priority of the issue. We sort of opened the survey with that question. And we know that 30% across the state, 30% of Victorians put climate change as one of the top three most important issues for the state. But if you look for the young, across the younger age group, over half put it as one of the top three issues. So you had 56% of young people saying climate change is one of the most important issues um, facing the state today. And if you look specifically at the 16 and 17-year-olds, when they ranked those priority issues, 
education was their first issue of importance, climate change was second. And that's a consistent finding too across other surveys that are done in um, Australia find that the younger generation, because they've got lots at stake, they're the ones that um, have a higher level of concern. But by saying that, it shouldn't take away from um, the older age groups as well because I think the age group that had the least concern was the over 65s, but they're still, you know, almost 7 in 10 are still concerned about climate change. So although we can pick the research apart and find these small differences across different subgroups on a demographic basis, the overwhelming finding is that the majority of every subgroup um, is, is concerned and want action and are willing to act themselves. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that um, I was having a discussion this morning with um, one of the authors of the local government review and talking about the fact that, you know, we've got to start framing this in terms of what the science tells us. Mm. You know, the impetus and the speed that things have got to happen at is mm. is got to be related to actually meet been tied back to meeting those uh, one and a half, two degrees and, and possibly one and a half. Um, that's what we've got to keep doing. And, and as this research bears out, you know, people are wanting to see that action, aren't they? You know, Definitely. Where, where the government has taken action, there's been overwhelmingly strong support. So um, when we asked about the target, the zero emissions um, target by 2050, they've got um, eight out of 10 supporting that target. And when we asked about the renewable energy targets, that's even higher, 84% support those targets. And when we break down those results and look across all the regions, it's consistently strong. And we also looked at that um, support for um, the renewable energy targets across personal concern for climate change. And even where personal concern about climate change isn't that high, their support for renewable energy and having those targets is high. So that's something that really brings Victorians where there was probably the least amount of difference is that support for the renewable energy targets definitely out there. Yeah, and it just makes sense because on a cost analysis and everything, um, they're more economical and they get more economical every day as as the costs come down. So that's great. Look, we're going to be running short of time today. So I, um, I really appreciate you coming in and... It's going to be great. I know that there's some research in the pipeline around climate change and health. Um, So I'm hoping that we can get you back and talk more in depth about that and some of the other work that you're doing um, in the next month or so because uh, I think there's some some more on the way. Health and uh, what was the other? We're we're doing some research into health just to see how people join the dots on health and climate change because we had a question in there that asked why are people concerned about climate change. Mostly people were concerned about future generations And then um, about half were concerned about the state of the planet as well. And health did get a look in, but it was about a third of the people are connecting, you know, are saying that they're concerned for health reasons and for quality of life. But um, a lot of work that's been done by health professional organisations say, you know, it's a crisis looming. Health Mm. and climate change will really put strain on the health systems and really have impacts further down. Well, now, and we're already seeing them, but further down the track too will have huge impact on the health of the community. So word doing we suspect that there's not really those dots being joined by you know the population so we're just starting to do some qualitative research to see how people do connect these two things fantastic and then the other piece of research we were doing was um with climate works to see to look at all the actions that people can do and we've got all these listed in our take two pledge program all the different ways individuals can help act on climate change and we're doing a piece to analyze which of those 
um, actions are the most impactful because we know people want to act and know that it's meaningful and they want to know that their actions really are having a difference and they just say, tell us what to do, tell us which ones are going to have the biggest impact. So once we've done this analysis, we'll be able to share that and get that out there. Oh, that sounds really good. So that will be a really interesting conversation and I'll look forward to that. So thank you, Diana. It's been great to have a quick chat today and we look forward to talking more about some of that really interesting work that's coming out. Thanks, Erin. Thank you. Thanks. So that was a brief discussion we had earlier in studio with Diana McDonald from Sustainability Victoria. And it's really pretty interesting the research that they've done um, about community attitudes. And it is massively in support of more action on climate change at all levels, business, government and individual. So that's really interesting. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is a extended version of the Beyond Zero Emissions show tonight. Um, we've had the luxury of a little bit more time because the Save Albert Park show is um, on a bit of a hiatus at the moment. Um, but I will wrap things up there and uh, we'll... Um, but I've really enjoyed bringing the show to you today and we've um, focused a lot on local government initiatives, what's happening with the um, 350.org Australia Bill McKibben speaking tour. So make sure that you jump onto their website and get tickets. I know tickets are selling fast, so have a look at that. Um, he's touring pretty much all over the East Coast, but if you can't get along to one of those talks, you can also access the live stream. So make sure you don't miss out. And he's a really great public speaker who's an absolute authority in this area. And we all need um, a bit of a pick-me-up every now and again and a push-along to get things happening. So, And um, I also look forward to more discussion with Diana about that excellent research that's happening that really proves all the things that we know anecdotally that people want action, but it's great that the um, Victorian government particularly is doing some of that work. So thanks for joining me, Erin Jones, on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Uh, next week we hope to actually bring you some live uh, interview with Bill McKibben. It's, uh, Vivian is doing the show next week, but I will potentially be in the studio as well to bring you that discussion um, with Bill. He's also going on Q&A next Monday, so I'm hoping that he can fit us in for a bit of a, a short chat. So thanks for tuning in to the Beyond Zero Emissions show and um, I'll talk to you after this. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam 
at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.